If you haven't heard of David Bedrick, I highly encourage you to pause this podcast episode and go onto Instagram and go and listen to his reels. David Bedrick is an elder who is dedicated to the work of unshaming our culture and our world. And sometimes when I dive into his content, I want to cry, I want to weep. It feels like the words of a loving father speaking over you and inviting you to be your true self, to not be ashamed of your darkness or your shadows or your trauma. Just bring your whole self forward. Inside of this episode, David and I sit down to talk about what it looks like to step into eldership. And what I love about this conversation is that I invited him on to talk about unshaming, but what we ended up talking about was the ache for elders to come and imbue our culture with wisdom, with courage, with insight, with a seeing eye with an unshamed voice and perspective. And I felt so encouraged by this inquiry of what does it look like to be initiated into eldership. And I know some of you who listen to our podcast are walking into that territory. You are walking into a threshold of life that is calling upon you to bring your wisdom to the table And there's lots of questions, lots of curiosities to hold with that. And in this conversation, David Bedrick really describes what it looks like to step into eldership that isn't just being older um, or sort of demanding respect from the populace for having lived, but he calls elders into a path of heart through the most loving and compassionate witness and conversation I've had to date. David is the founder of the Santa Fe Institute for Shame-Based Studies, where he teaches therapists, coaches, and healers from all around the world. He is an adjunct faculty for the Process Work Institute and was on the faculty of the University of Phoenix for eight years. He is the author of three books, Talking Back to Dr. Phil, Alternatives to Mainstream Psychology and Revisioning Activism, Bringing Depth, Dialogue, and Diversity to Individual and Social Change, and You Can't Judge a Body by Its Cover, 17 Women's Stories of Hunger, Body Shame, and Redemption. His upcoming book, Unshamed, will be published in 2024. And I cannot wait because David's voice, David's work on this topic is next level. This season, David is offering a subscription teaching, a membership, two to three times a month called Unshamed Monthly Medicine. And I highly encourage you to get into the room with him. Watch yourself unlock, watch yourself recode, watch yourself repattern through a holistic lens. Inside of Unshamed Monthly Medicine, people can learn techniques and ask any and all questions about shame and healing and be in a communal unshaming space. Sounds super supportive. I'll make sure to include the link in the show notes. Inside of this episode, David and I really go into it. And sometimes there are moments where the audio cracks and the frequency shifts and things happen. And there's a little bit of crying. There's just deep heart to heart, world shifting conversation, I believe, um, that even if only a little bit, even in the subtle If you just allow this episode and this conversation of what it looks like to step into a path of initiated eldership, I believe that it will support you in shaping your own perspective about these things in the world. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoy. Thank you for listening to the Kin Spirit Podcast, a podcast about imagining and crafting a more whole world. In these episodes, I'll be sharing conversations with people that I believe have beautiful perspectives, asking questions like, how might we craft futures of wholeness? 
What does that look like, taste like, feel like? What does it look like in our work, in our relationships with ourselves and each other, and in our relationship with the mystery and our mids? How can we allow wholeness to be centered in our human evolution and global creative processes? How can we craft a vision of the future that can really hold all of us? I hope these episodes support you in your own inquiry into these questions. Thank you for listening. Enjoy. I lived in Portland, Oregon for 16 years, and I moved there to originally to study with a, a teacher, Arnold Mandel, who was a Jungian analyst and started a school uh, called Process Oriented Psychology initially. And I loved Oregon, actually. And I was also ready, uh, me and my partner, Lisa, we were both ready to leave and ended up coming here. And a number of different things happened. One, I thought I would start my counseling practice anew and that it would just mm-hmm. take a couple of years. Well, after one year, I had two clients. After two years, I had one client. So I thought, this is not going so well, <laughs> uh, at least in that plan. And, um, but I was always a writer and I had a draft of a book sitting around for a long time. So I thought, well, maybe I should finish that book being other things aren't happening. Um, and that led me to write, uh, three books and for a number of different venues and people got to know me outside of the local area. So my clients grew, but one of the things that happened in Santa Fe and the land was a, a creative time. It didn't turn out to be a, I'll find clients and make my transition into earning a living so quickly. So that got a little scary after a year or so. Um, but it ended up being quite creative um, being here. What I miss is the ocean. And I love being near water. And that's been harder on me than I realize. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Um, first of all, just wanting to acknowledge the transition um, of being here and landing here and rooting here. Yeah. I feel like, you know, one thing I feel like I long for more of in conversations about healing work and holding work is the impact that environment has on our bodies mm-hmm. and the impact that the land has on the psyche. Mm-hmm. And I feel like when we move into different places, you know, I grew up in Tennessee. Um, I lived my whole childhood and adolescence in West Tennessee and my whole adulthood so far in East Tennessee in Appalachia. So the last 11 years or so had been spent in just like the very dewy, foggy forests of Appalachia Mm -hmm. um, in Knoxville, Tennessee. And, And there was something about that that really informed the way that I could see the world and could see myself um, through the fog, right? And so, so interesting to hear you talk about landing in Santa Fe and then immediately going into a death, right? Like it sounds like, it sounded like, it sounded like you went straight into a creative death, straight into a professional death. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of like, reorienting, wondering when, you know, when the juice is going to come, when things are going to like arrive and pick up. And, and, and I feel like the land here invites us into sort of the most stripped bare version of ourselves to really see our essential nature. And what was called out of you were these three phenomenal books. Um, The first one being the one that you cut your teeth on. That was like I've heard you talk about this one or two times where you were challenging Dr. Phil um, and his approach to to the work that he is doing on television. But then you had these other works come through that had such a such a grace, not that the first one didn't, but like such a grace, like a such a grace, such a a tenderness, such a gentleness toward Mm. the human psyche, the self, shame, the Mm. body. And yeah, so I'm just like recognizing that. And now Santa Fe is like, you're ready to go back to the ocean. Thank you for your service. <laughs> Thank you for your service. <laughs> you know, an interesting thing that I realized after moving here, 
because I moved to Portland, Oregon, because of a school and a teacher there, then I became a student. We're always students, but meaning my identity was more student than teacher. We're always learning. Right. right? So leaving there was also really good for me, even though I finished that program and I ended up going to law school. I was there. I didn't realize I was going to do that. So there's a lot of studentness in me. And living mm. as a student, I'm learning. It doesn't mean that I'm teaching. You can do both, of course. But mm. leaving also ended up pulling me much more into my teacher self. And part of that was not being mm. around a person who I looked up to as teacher. Because he would mm. write books all the time. So I'd read his books and i hear his ideas. And that would be great. Yeah. And he wasn't an abuser or trying to keep me down. But my right. own psyche was a looking up to a teacher and therefore didn't put energy into what is it that I have to teach, whether it's as good, not as good, different mm. from. I didn't kind of go on my own way um, until I actually left there. I didn't know that would happen. But after a while of being away from where that school was, I was like, oh, wow. And that community of people and other therapists that I was right. learning from. Like, oh, I'm not part of a community where I'm stu- where many of us are students of a certain teacher. And that was really freeing for me that I didn't know was going to be like that. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It sounds like you were initiated into um, what mm. Plotkin, Bill Plotkin, one of my favorite authors, talks about your mythopoetic identity. You were initiated Beautiful. into your like adulthood identity. And like, mm. I feel like, you know, I feel like one of the pieces, and I didn't even know that the conversation might turn this direction. So it it, it really delights me. Um, And I'm curious because I know that a lot of people sort of in my age range, right? So I'm 29, I'll be 30 in June. um, And by the time this podcast comes out, I'll probably be 30 or coming close to it. Um, And... (laughs) I know that so many people in my age range struggle with like the shame of not being arrived at their Mm. soul identity. And like we struggle from not having all the things together and all the pieces together of our lives, not knowing exactly where we're going of pivoting. Pivoting is the biggest um, part of like what I feel like even my clients, some of them are older than me struggle with shame around is like, I have to pivot. If I don't pivot, I will die. Um, if I don't shift, if I don't change, I will die, but there's so much shame around change. And there's so much shame around establishing your own voice and your own identity Mm -hmm. in the world and in community, because we're afraid of so many things. One of the biggest things is belonging. We'll lose belonging. Mm-hmm. If we become truer versions of ourselves, I'm curious, like what your process was around that of like really deciding for yourself, um, like really individuating yourself away from, um, not against, but just sort of into your own essence, into your own person. Yeah. What was that like for you? What was change yeah. and initiation like for you in that? I like that you use the word initiation and death. When I was 18 years old, I'm 67. When I was 18 years old, I was in college and I got involved with hallucinogens and I liked it a lot. And I had to stop mm. myself because I thought, this is David, you're going to, it's dangerous for you to do this much. But I really liked it a lot. And what I liked was some kind of perspective shift that I was enjoying. And I thought, I'm going to leave college and go study with a shaman down in Mexico because I had started researching mm. where I might go to do this. And because that's really where my psyche was, my head was at. I went home after that school year and I told my parents, this is what I'm going to do. <laughs> that didn't work out so well because well, oh, no. they, they were... Uh, you know, whatever, obviously. They were very like, that's terrible. You shouldn't do that. And I didn't have much personal power. Meaning I couldn't say, well, that's you, but this is who I am. This is my decision. I didn't have the inner resource or the outer resource to say, I'm going to follow what's right for me. So I went back to college and 
mm. got my shit together in that way. Um, yeah. When I was 34, 35, I started learning about this processor, the psychology, which had a shamanic piece and a dreaming. Yes. Piece and, a and it was like, it reminded me of the, the same interest, a little different style, but it was the same kind of interest, the same thing inside of me woke up. And I thought, it's too late to do this because I had a, oh. I started a consulting firm and I was making some money and I had an identity and I had a, uh, whatever, a life. I had a partner, I had a house. And I was like, oh, shoot, it's not too late. I still want to do it. And I don't know what's too late. 36, 46, 86, I don't know. It's still in mm. me. And I needed some support and I got the support. Actually, I was more in myself to do it, but I also had people who loved me enough to say, I think I see who you are, David. And then that looks like your path. Let me encourage you more. Um, so that wow. was that was a, a kind of a death because I left relationships. I left job. I left home. I left all the people I was connected to, basically, and um, moved to uh, Portland. Then when I left Portland, something similar happened. It wasn't quite as dramatic, but there was also that kind of a death. And I think, in like I said, in retrospect, it had more to do with leaving a place that I was learning and cutting my own path. But I'm on another another thing that's happening at the moment. I This man, Arnie Mandel, who was a teacher of mine, we used to, he kept touch with us. Like we had sessions together a bunch of times a year for 33 years. So, wow. so he's, he's been an elder for me. It's not like a therapist per se. Yeah. But he would, I'd say, what's going on? These are my nighttime dreams. This is what I'm thinking. And, and he loved me, meaning he cared a lot about me. And then, so yeah. I needed that. And then was the step ahead. He could see me and say, I can see where you are. And then I did have a person who was a friend and therapist for 17 years. And both of those relationships recently stopped. My therapist friend, Salome, she was Swiss. She just died about four months ago. Mm. And Arnie's in his early mid eighties and said, I think I'm not going to do just make regular time with people anymore. So it's like, there's another thing happening with the people that I would look to for some kind of assurance, some kind of guidance. And it's been very interesting. Another, it's not quite as potent a death, but I'm noticing, it's kind of strange to stay at 67, but I'm noticing, oh, it's really just up to me. It always was. I understand that. But it's meaning like there's nobody to, to bounce it off of, you know, I mean, yeah. people and friends, but there's nobody really who knows better, so to speak. That's been interesting to not have that in my life because I've always... I've always been attracted to uh, people who are, I call them elders, one step ahead of me yeah. and can see me, can see what I can't see about myself, was what I would call that. Yeah. Yes. Oh, thank you so much for sharing this with me because I feel so encouraged by you. You are twice as old as me, plus seven years. Yeah. There's <laughs> so much wisdom that you have brought into my world by way of Instagram. And then like the last 15 minutes of conversation, especially. And I just want to honor that. And thank mm. you for being an initiated elder. And I'm curious if like, if that is a doorway that we can walk through for a moment, because, yeah, let's do that. Mm -hmm. um, because I, you know, it's something that I have talked about a couple of times on this podcast has yeah. been about like young people and change and initiation yeah. could also be said, we ache for elders. Yeah. We ache for guidance. We ache for folks who have gone ahead and know mm -hmm. what it's like. And we ache not only for folks who know what it's like, who have gone ahead, but who yeah. are initiated in the sense that they know their role and their impact and their voice and are ready to impart their wisdom in the world. And I feel like you are doing such a beautiful job at really owning your role as an elder in the culture, even though now we live in this like very distributed web. This is so... It's so futuristic right now, and we haven't quite figured out the language for what are the the confines of like mm -hmm. 
village and community, you know, and I'm curious about that. I'm curious about how you see eldership in the modern age. If you have a perspective about that, if you have yeah. thoughts about that. Yeah. It's a, it's a really interesting, I, a few things come up for me. One, when I was in my early thirties, I was involved with a men's group. There was a smaller group locally, and then we would get together once a year in a larger group of people. And um, and we would do things that people look, I don't know, they're stereotypes. You know, we would read poems and tell stories and drum, and it was great. You know, it, it was, it, I don't know why I'm saying it's great, like, like, like I'm putting it down. It was a beautiful experience. I met some really great men at the time. I think my negative is that I see things that are happening that I don't really like, but these days, but that's not, that's not, neither here nor there. But to the point of eldership, one of the leaders one day said, we really should honor our elders. And he said, everybody older than, I think it was 60, please come and like 150 of us all together for this four or five days that once a year we get together. And all those over 60 please come to the front of this big circle. And they did. And they, he said, let's honor these elders. And people clapped and they stood up and they were very touched. And then this, another one of the teachers said, I can't get the Southern accent, which I can't do. But he said, now, when was the last time any of you older men praised a younger man and told him so? adored a younger man and told him so i just i can still feel i just started weeping nobody raised their hand wow mm -hmm. that incredible it makes me weep even saying it again i remember it so clearly because it was like let's honor the elders and there are people for sure but then there's something that's not exactly true because are these people elders well they they had age yeah. But not one of them said, of course, I see younger men and adore them and tell them, this is beautiful about you. This mm -hmm. is brilliant about you. This is passionate about you. I see this gift in you. No, not one of them raised their hand and said, I do that. I was mm -hmm. like, oh my gosh. And I felt a grief at that moment. I didn't even know I was missing that because yeah. no one ever did it. My father didn't do it for me for whatever that reason was. That was a jealousy and a strained relationship that sometimes people have as a parent. Um, and sometimes parents are not the best people to do that anyway, because the relationship yeah. is strained with other dynamics, right? Right. Um, sometimes a parent can do that, but sometimes it's, in my work counseling with people over 30 years, it's often, the parent is often not in the best role to see the child clearly because of the strained relationship. I'm going to do this, I'm going to make my independence, right. how well you're doing reflects on me as a parent, all that confusing stuff. But then who are the people who do that? Um, and then recently I wrote a post, I think it was on Facebook about eldership, asking about that. And a number of people, and I'm shy to say this because some people hear it and won't like what I'm saying. And that's okay because that's the way it goes. This is, people, say it. Yeah. A number of people would, were saying, well, there's plenty of elders around. People just don't see us. People are just not finding us. People said these things. People, people have to be willing to take my eldership, you know, and be open to that. And I always think, as I listened to those voices, I heard people that needed eldership, that were and felt, well, I'd, I'd be an elder, but I need people to see me and appreciate me. And I'm like, well, yeah, that's what I'm thinking. The elders should be doing. <laughs> I'm not saying that yeah. we don't appreciate elders. I understand the culture is not, doesn't say you're older. That isn't that great. They say older, you don't look as good. Your neck is sagging. Your body is doing earth-related <laughs> earth things as opposed to perky things. So, you know what I mean? I understand that the culture doesn't like that. But then, but then as an elder, then we have to deal with that. What will I do with that? How will I, what's the impact that I want to have on that culture? If I think that it doesn't know how to support elders, then as an elder, I think, what should I do about that? Not, oh my gosh, then I don't have enough of that. Does that make sense? That makes sense. And it's sparking a question for me because I think that this feels unclear culturally. What makes an elder? 
Because I hear the nuances between becoming an older person versus becoming an elder who is initiated and has wisdom to impart, who has a heart to give, who has something to offer this Mm. world and their younger counterparts. And that's different than getting older. And um, I would love for you to speak on that and help us to discern the difference between the two. Yeah. As he was as he was saying, a bunch of words came into my mind. The first one was a path of heart. And however we define it, that means for me, the person knows what you were implying this. The person knows what their path is. Doesn't mean it doesn't move and wander and shift. It's not like that's it. I'm on straight line. I never do it. But more or less knows something like these are the this is the medicine I carry for the world whether that's for two people, one child, or 30 people, or a group of people. Um, And that medicine is usually connected to wounds that that person knows intimately, a wounded healer. That could be for me as a Jew, or for you as a woman of color, or personally for what you've gone through and struggled with, that somehow that's been cooked. And in that cooking, it's, it's, you know something about what it's like to be injured or marginalized or hurt or traumatized or those kinds of things. And you know what it's like to make something of that. I've worked that territory. I've made something of that. It doesn't mean, I'm not dismissing it. I'm not saying, and therefore, I, isn't it good that I got hurt? No, that's a bunch of bullshit. I mean, I know something, what it's like to cook being, a, for me, a Jewish man who lived in a violent home. I know something, what it's like to cook that. It's not gone. I don't feel like I'm all over that. I don't have any of those feelings. I have no traumatic experiences living inside of me. That's a bunch of bull too. Of course I do. But I know something, what it's like to hang with that material and that something can grow out of that. What David has to do, give to the world, can grow from that. Um, the other words that come to me, is that, should I go on or is that, should I, yeah. Please go on. This is so beautiful. Yes. The three other words that come to me is in T.S. Eliot, who was a poet and a Christian mystic, um, in his poem, uh, Four Quartets, he says something, I'm not going to remember the exact words. He says, don't give me the wisdom of old people who had simply bequeathed me a receipt for deceit. It's it's old. It doesn't exist. He said, Tell me of your folly. I want my elders to tell me of the mistakes they made, their fear of being alive. He said, it's about humility. Humility is endless, he said. And by humility, I don't mean, I'm really an idiot. I'm really not so smart. That's that's not humility. I'm a really bright person. I know that. It's not humility to say I'm not smart. The humility is, let me tell you about the mistakes I made. Let me tell you about the decisions that I made that really weren't serving my life. Let me tell you about the relationships that I entered that continued patterns. I wish I could have changed them. I'm not downing myself. I just see, I spent a decade or two redoing relationships that I didn't know how to get past by myself. Again, it's not about putting myself down. It's just like, here's mistakes. Or when people, when I teach facilitators um, how to be better, coaches and therapists. And I say, here's the mistakes I made with clients. Here's what I did that really wasn't right. Here's what I did that really was not useful in terms of the power structures that I have another person. I think I could have damaged them. I think that should be brought out. Mm -hmm. Again, not as a, I'm going to beat myself. I'm no good. It's not a pity party as such. It's just a genuine mistakes. Um, the other two things that come to me are um, are death, and you mentioned that having died at least once or twice is really helpful. Meaning, my whole not just like a little thing happened. My whole life had to change. It wasn't working, and it was and there was some pain and difficulty that I was. It wasn't like, and then I realized I should do this, and I was happy. I mean, oh shit. This pattern of living, whether it was old conditioning or a childhood story or whatever it was, or a limiting belief, is coming to an end. 
and it can't produce life anymore. And I wanted to, and I'll try for another two, three more years. <laughs> Not like I learned it yesterday and I know it's over and I'm going to try it a little bit longer until something happens, until something breaks down, relationship breaks down, a substance abuse enters the system and breaks down, a health issue breaks down, deep relationships that you have or an important path of work and finances break down. Something says you can't continue this anymore. <laughs> and then you go through that and it's hard and you struggle and you're scared of making the change um, and you find some new life. To know that life renews itself like that. Because um, many people don't go through that ever. They never renew it. They just think, I hope, whatever. My children maybe will do that or whoever. Or no, I hope nobody does it, right? I hope my children don't do it anyway and they just stay in the same... I'm going to say church, but I don't mean Christian. And the last thing I, I'm thinking of because of a, another poet, um, Yeats, who talked about, uh, he has a poem called Dialogue of Self and Soul. And he talks about all the mistakes that he made in his life. Marrying the wrong woman and and trying to be more together than he was. And all he just goes through thing after thing after thing. And the end of the poem he says, I would do it all again. And he, and he says, what I, he doesn't say it this way, but the lesson of his life was in being open to the whole, the whole series of mistakes. He says, as an older man, what he got out of that is, I feel blessed and I can bless. I can bless. And I love that word. Blessing is a, maybe it was what, that leader was asking those men back when I was young, have you blessed someone? And that doesn't mean just, you, I see your gifts. Sometimes somebody comes to me and says, I've been working on this trauma for 15 years and I'm still in a mess and I still are in a mess. And blessing them could be, could be just me telling them how I still have traumatic experiences and they don't go away. And I see them and they kind of feel like, oh, I can be here like this. So it, it happens in different ways that a person feels seen in a certain way. Mm -hmm. That is so powerful. I feel, I feel blessed. I feel permissed. I feel allowed in this conversation. I feel lifted up. I feel like you have just imparted such beautiful wisdom about what it really means to be alive and to be human that I feel like I've spent hours and hours and hours and hours combing books, like spending thousands of dollars on oh, books. I love that book. <laughs> oh, Tibetan book of living yeah, and dying. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. It's so good. Um, I'm just like, I caught the, I caught the picture and the picture. I couldn't read the words. I was like, Oh, I know that. Yeah. Yes. And, and what you just spoke, what you just transmitted was so rooting and so recalibrating and that is the power of your voice as an elder mm -hmm. like in the last 15 minutes of conversation I feel like I've just yeah I've just I feel like I should like repay you mm -hmm. <laughs> for the wisdom that you just imparted mm -hmm. to me mm -hmm. but also like I just feel mm -hmm. thankful for others who get to hear this very clear pathway toward wholeness and eldership. Yeah. Um, what does it, what does it really mean to become a liberated, initiated elder? Um, mm. And what does it mean to become a liberated, initiated adult? This is something I've been thinking about a yeah. lot where like, you know, our, rites of passage into adulthood as young people are like, you turn 18 and now you can, uh, you can smoke cigarettes or you go to prom or you graduate college. Yeah. Um, you get your first job. You don't make enough to pay your bills. These are our initiations and they feel empty. They feel devoid of like the yeah. actual, the, the literal breath. And, and like, I know so many young people feel like sort of a, a like, a frustration, a bitterness, um, cycling on yeah. 
Like, 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 what do we do with this material that we've been given? And what we hear from, I know what I hear from many of the elders in my life is just, you just work harder and you get over it and you X, Y, and Z. But what you just spoke to spoke to so many aspects of this, like uh, the path of heart, right? Which feels really foolish as a young person. And and it feels foolish. I do it anyway. I pursue it anyway, right? This essence liberation, like really choosing to, um, to be in the body and to be alive to each moment. I love that you spoke to humility. And I keep thinking about humility as like, being an of the earthness it coming from that word humilis like coming of the earth being of the earth you spoke to death and dying you spoke to um like like there's this like regenerative quality to what you're speaking to of hey you're gonna die hey you're gonna reach the end of yourself and that's a good thing that's a good thing here's what you can do with that that i feel like is so missing because most of us are preoccupied with how am I going to pay my taxes this year and how am I going to like, you know, afford to be a human being in the Western world um, with the, what's like the material, but what you're giving is like creative potential. What you're giving is a future. And I find mm-hmm. that very, very specific. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's medicine. Wow. Well, thank you for that. And that reflection. I'm loving your language. I hear the poeticness that lives inside of you. I don't know if that's where you where you kneel down and pray, so to speak, in, in the poetry land. But yeah. I can hear the language you use is so alive and and fluid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I lost my track. Mm-hmm. I was thinking you're saying something, but I wanted to say that first, and the other thought went away. Thank you. But it'll come back. Mm-hmm. I received that. I receive it. Like there's something to call up from the dark, from the soil of our bodies, of our culture, yeah. of the space in between each and every one of us yeah. that I feel like only the muse, only only the poem can really do it sometimes. Only the yeah. song can really call us up yeah. um, and help us to transit through these like cycles yeah. of shame, um, of yeah. like inadequacy as humans. Yeah that we face yeah mm-hmm. you know it makes me think of of earth and soul that in the as we were talking just before we started about i don't know if we call it the healing industry or culture or something mm-hmm. that doesn't have in my view enough earth in it meaning downward yeah. Meaning I don't get over, I go down. Right. Mm. That other part of the path going up is great. But that going down, digging in the ground for some mm. decades, you know, digging in the ground to as a way of, of fine cultivating your own uh, gifts and path, mm. dropping down. So if people feel down, it's considered a pathology. You're depressed, yeah. anti-depressed or you're got some kind of immune issue that makes you tired and you have to find energy and all those are real sufferings. So I don't want to dismiss those, but the downward motion is almost always looked at it as not a good thing, but, and it's, sometimes it's not, sometimes something putting you down, that's not a good thing. Then we, then you need support to push back, right? If someone's push, putting you down or culture's yeah. putting you down and you're trying to move in, then, then we want to forward your, your forward motion, your upward energy, your mm. fight. But but for a lot of people, being down is something they never get to know, even though they feel down because it's trying to be up all the time. So you don't hang out in a darker, difficult place for some years or yeah. repeatedly, or I'm feeling better and now I'm back there again. Oh my gosh, what's wrong with me? Yeah, there's a judgment that we have about the down places. Yeah. And I do think it's because we we don't know as much about it anymore. Yeah. And you know, I I went through a, a down 
place recently that I shared about recently on the podcast where I got to face the edge, absolute edge of myself. And like the, like the expanded version of me knew exactly what was up. She was like, you are in Persephone's myth. You're in the underworld. No, you don't want to be alive. And that is part of it. Yeah. Right. There's this sense of like, you know, there were parts of it where I'm like, is, am, am, you know, am I pathological? Am I X, Y, and Z? And my spirit was saying, no, 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 you're going to move through this. You're going to transit through this. And then you're going to come out on the other side because spring is coming. Right. And, and I'm curious about this because I feel like your work in your work, you talk about this a little bit where we pathologize, um, and when I say pathologize, I mean we offer a life sentence to the yeah. down, the deep, the fertile, the dark um, yeah. of of the soil yeah. of our lives. And mm-hmm. how do we how do we like wiggle out from underneath that life sentence and begin yeah. to reclaim our lives yeah. without like buying back into uh, sort of ascension culture where the only way to go is up, 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 up until we're no longer on the earth, yeah. right? There's like, can we have like a recipe of a little bit of this and a little bit of that, like a little bit of upper world and underworld and east and west, or do we have to choose one? Cause it feels like, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, it's such a good question. I mean, I don't really have an answer other than my, than individual answers, meaning I used to be much more of an activist in a certain way. Um, and I wrote my whole, my whole second book is on what I think psychology should add and contribute to activism. But activism meaning some outward fight for something, which I still believe in strongly. But I find myself being more attracted to individual answers. You do this. Who are you? Oh, this is what you should do. And who are you? This is what you should do. And and helping people get in touch with their individual things. So then someone should make art and someone should play a saxophone and someone should fight with their parents and someone should say, I'm not going to diet. And then somebody should say, I'm going to stand on the White House steps and make sure those legislators from Tennessee get reinstated. So I think all of, I like the diversity of answers more than I used to see. Um, And I think those answers come from the, don't come from the up. I think they come from digging in the ground more the earth part of things the transcendence i think is really important or connection to spirit some people would call that um it's a marvelous connection to have but there's something about where do you find out what you who you are and what you're made of so to speak and what you have to give i don't know i don't see people finding that very often in the upward i see people finding that by going through something and saying I have come through something. I know something about this part of life. Um, and um, yeah, I love that you said the soul of our lives. For me, um, for me, some of my greatest teachers were African-American. And in part, because I'm Jewish and that connection resonated for me because it's, I, it's something inside my own soul said, oh, those people seem to know something that I'm feeling that no one's telling me about. So that would be one thing. But also because when I wanted to learn about what it's like to go through something, I didn't have models. My my family didn't want to connect with the difficult part of the Jewish story. I understand that sometimes that happens, right? Like a first generation, uh, uh, post-Holocaust generation. Many Jews were like, I just want to be here and, and I don't have to be suffering at the same level. Maybe I can just focus on getting a good job and giving my kids a career. I understand that. I don't think it's loveless, but it's blind because it doesn't work. But I but I get it. I get why somebody would want to save their, spare their children from the hell they went through. But it also means to cut people off from their story. Right? My initial, my original name was Bedrik Oversky, Russian. Right. And for many Jews, and it became Bedrick. How come? Because it was because you can 
assimilate easier with a name that didn't sound Jewish. So that's the outer thing, but that also means an inner thing. I was thinking, as I was saying that, I was thinking of James Baldwin, who who wrote a book called The Price of the Ticket. He said, the price of the ticket to become American is it means to be white, right? You can that's that's the ticket. You you can be white, you can pass, you can give up where you came from. So you can give your Russianness, you can give up your Italianness, you can give your Spanish, and you can get whiteness. And that's, but there's a cost to that ticket, right? Mm-hmm. The cost of the ticket is something like what we are calling the soul of our lives. That sounds woo-woo. And what does that really mean? It really means a path of heart, which you're really meant to do, a sense of your deep purpose, the capacity to love. It's not yes. just like oh, a soul life. What does that mean? It yeah. means you can't like you can't love without one of those souls. You can't yeah. feel, receive it. It's 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 not just an extra privilege, it's like fundamental to being alive. Oh. Yeah. Um so I look to people like James Baldwin. He's I got a picture of him, my, my favorite. I've had him on my desk for 30 years. This is the picture I have. Look at that beautiful man. <laughs> look at that. Yeah. Look at yes. that you know? Yes, the now, legacy. You see, those, you see those eyes? Yeah. These eyes, when he was a kid, his stepfather um, would tease him about his bulging eyes. And he would tease mm. him so mercilessly that uh, that Baldwin would lay on the ground on his back and put coins on his eyes, hoping he could push them back in. Mm. And even into way into his adulthood, towards his death, he still felt somewhere where he was ugly because of that had gone in so deep. Yeah. yeah. And the reason why I say that in terms of just our conversation and soul and eldership, he carried that as certain wounds and pains. He didn't get over that. But he made that into something. He saw America maybe as clear as anybody could ever see it. I think some people do clearly, but he was an incredible elder of a nation who said, I see you, America. Let me tell you what I see. How come I see it? Because I'm down below, you see. You stepped on me. I'm down below digging in the ground. But I know how to actually love America more than most people do because I see her and I see you and I see the white folks who don't know and still don't know who who they are. Don't even know they, anyway, all that particular thing. Yeah. It's making me think about the connection. In one of my favorite pieces of literature is a letter that Baldwin wrote to his nephew. It's called Letter to the Nephew. You may have seen it. If not, Google it and you can find it. It's about six, seven pages, or people could could find that it's it's in a book called um The Fire Next Time. And um and his number nephew was like 15 years old or 14 or something, uh black youth growing up in Harlem. And he's saying, let me tell you about this country. Let me tell you about the inferiority that they will lay upon you. That's not true. And he says very clearly, like, this is this is the country. This is their innocence, meaning their refusal to see. And then, so he's like, a, he's in unsparing clarity, critical wow. vision. And then he says to his nephew, but these people... You have to love them. What do you mean love? Like in some new age way, he says, mm-hmm. you're their older brother. Mm-hmm. He tells like this 14-year-old kid, right? You're the elder. Mm-hmm. They don't know who they are. Mm-hmm. People, these innocent people, more or less white-looking America, they are so young, so out of touch that you'll have to show them, not, not love them, meaning, oh, it's okay, you're fine, we, we, I'll never criticize you. He didn't mean that. He meant mm-hmm. you, they'll need somebody who actually is awake and can love, who's got mm-hmm. a soul, because they're lost without you. But that's an amazing thing to say. Um, I got lost on, hard on that, but that's somehow James Baldwin. Well, it's just, I start thinking about him. Yeah. I think that that is so remarkable because I feel like the image that you're pointing to <clears throat> is the role of the elder is to call forth and call up the next generation and the futures of, you know, their futures. And this, 
like this image, you know, it kind of reminds me too. I've been reading this book called The Book of Forgiving by Desmond Tutu. Oh. Um, in this season of my life where I'm really having to look at my relationship with forgiveness and am yeah. I going to um take in what you know yeah. Instagram psychology is telling me about relationships and belonging and quote unquote, believing who people are, or am I going to witness the true and deep humanity of these moments, these wounds, these people in my life who I have never stopped loving and longing for their wholeness and their good and their inherent belonging. Um, Asking that question in like a real way with my face on the floor, like not even, can't even get philosophical about it. It's like, Mm -hmm. it's, it's, am I going to face this or am I going to waste away and die and give up and and leave it alone, you know, and like, let it fester and, and let it be, and, you know, submit myself to be in therapy for the rest of my life because I won't actually address the wound. Yeah. And impart a new story into my world. Yeah. And that that like I feel like that's the work that you're you're calling mm-hmm. eldership is like this calling forth, this beckoning forth of seeing it how it really is and acknowledging and accepting that and calling forth a new potential because yeah. of the essence of who people are, not how they're showing up or how they're who they're willing to be in a moment. Yeah. I just think that's so powerful. Amazing what you're saying. What did you what did you do with this idea of forgiveness or the or your experience? What what did what happened in that wrestle? Well, I feel like I'm still in the wrestle, um, uh-huh. but I, what I'm feeling in my body is a transfiguration of what happened. Uh-huh. And so, yes, there there is still hurt and there uh-huh. is still pain yeah. that I'll have to work with, um, but I'm not doomed to um, uh-huh. live my life from the moment I have permission to say it shouldn't have been like that. And I feel like I had to have, like I had to make the choice between like agreeing with, Oh, just accept it. Like it is, you know, all these people are narcissists or I could say, actually like it's more complex and nuanced than that. And I can accept what happened without also imprisoning them into mm-hmm. their own way of relating to how they showed up and dynamics, mm-hmm. their own stories. Um, and so in that is a liberation of some kind, like there's a transfiguration, there's a freedom, there's a shamelessness. There's, I feel like I'm, I'm sort of like able to see it in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also know to some people it's very foolish. <laughs> it's very, very foolish. But instead of being afraid of people now, I feel like I can love people, you know? It's huge. What's what's foolish? I'm, I almost, I'm almost with you, but I wanted to catch that detail. What's foolish is um, not... It's it's taking the you know the fork in the road between pathologizing people and saying you're a narcissist you're bad you're yeah. evil you should never love again yeah. and taking the other path and saying there's a lot of complexity there yes. are a lot of stories there are a lot of choices being made yeah. to contribute mm-hmm. to a hard dynamic mm-hmm. and a hard situation and mm-hmm. I pray for I hope for I long for your wholeness I long for your inherent belonging I long for your self-restoration period end of story that's what I long for and and like it that is that like I was writing about how forgiveness is not some altruistic thing that it's not this like I'm not this benefactor of grace. Mm-hmm. It will take you to the opposite place of your goodness. Forgiveness will always take you to the opposite place of your goodness because you have to face fully the things that happen and we have to face her pain. Mm-hmm. And well, yeah, it's it's hard. I don't have any answers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't yeah. have 
but I know that like, it feels better to call up like what wants to happen, what wants to evolve, releasing expectations, recognizing, you know, what's in sort of my plot of soil and what's not, what's in my, um, sort of yard of things Mm -hmm. to work with and what's not, but it's like, I can't be, I can't be regenerative with my own death and my own life. Mm if I'm not able to be regenerative with this story of someone else's. So it's the grace that I give, like the level of grace I'm able to offer to others is the level of grace I'm able to offer to myself. And yeah, that's, that's what it feels like in, in that. Oh, that's incredible. So beautiful what you're saying and powerful what you're saying. The depth that you're going to, regenerativeness being one of the centers of why you take a certain path you're saying if it's regenerative that's important if you can keep dying and being reborn recreating uh, your own life out of it that's an incredible criteria i love that as why do something if it so you could, some people have an idea of forgiveness that might not do that. It might be like, let it go and just be nice to people again and make believe it didn't happen. So in that case, regenerativeness would not occur. Wow, that's amazing. I never heard anybody say that before, that the, the regenerativeness of the healing act is whatever the criteria for whether it's really, whether it's really doing its job or whether it's something more superficial or something that's not going to that's not going to create it's not going to generate that's amazing great work holy moly <laughs> thanks i feel i kind of feel like the kid in the mud pile with like mud and grass all over their face the though best, so best. <laughs> we're, in the, mud is, we're in the middle we'll see what happens in 20 the years mud is with... <laughs> where is that? i was just listening listening to a story about uh, I think it was a Native American myth about the beginning of this, at least one of many versions of Native American myths. There's probably so many, but of the, the beginning of the world. And it was about uh, a woman gets brought down from the heavens, or she comes down from the heavens, and um, and I can't remember why, but she oh she ends up on a turtle, like a turtle island. She doesn't want a turtle, but it's not big enough to make a whole world on the back of the turtle. So she wants to build earth around the turtle. And the way she gets that is she makes connections with the animal allies and they go down into the ocean she's on Mm. and to get mud. You're talking about mud and they have to get the mud, the mud going down into the mud. We're going down this earth thing. Going down into the mud allows her to build um, the earth out of that anyway. The earth wow. the mud was the regenerative quality in that story. Like you have to go get the mud, right? Certain animals, mm. certain fishes, certain amphibious creatures could go and get mud. And that's what makes the new world, makes another a new world. Anyway, wow. when you said the mud, I was instantly transported into that, that particular story. I love that. So beautiful. I love the metaphor, the image. Yeah. 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 It's the idea that, you know, yeah, there's, there's a, um, a quality about being in change. And I think, you know, to bring it full circle, maybe, maybe we're afraid to, to be like muddy and to look a mess. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, it's breaking up a little bit, but I am hearing you about something shifted. Maybe, yeah. Yeah. I was just saying, you know, to bring it back full circle, there's something about being in the midst of change where we're afraid of being muddy or being a mess or looking a mess because we've learned that adulthood is sort of having your shit together 
but incredible. we learned through adulthood that when, when does that ever happen? <laughs> like, right. you know what I mean? Like every part of life is just together. You know, what does that mean? Um, it kind of reminds me of Octavia Butler's work and maybe we can even close on, close on this you know, this idea of shaping change. Yeah. Shaping change, shaping change, change yeah. is God. And God offers itself to us, himself to us as a substance, a material, the divine offers itself to us as a material to shape change with. Yeah. I think that that is so, such something beautiful to consider that maybe adulthood, maybe eldership is saying yes to playing the mud together. They're saying yes. It's I love that. Expression yeah. of change. Yeah, that's it. I'm okay being in the mud, not just being together. That's those are the leaders, I think. Right? I think people who are okay being in the shit, in the shit, in yeah. the mud, in the mess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Ken Spirit, an emergent spiritual collective of creatives and dreamers who are dedicated to the work of bridging the gap between the everyday and the sacred and storying our way through great change. Your listenership means the world to us. So if you enjoyed today's episode, please consider adding an honest rating and a written review so that more people can find the conversations we're holding. In between episodes, you can find us on social media at KenSpirit or KenSpirit.podcast. And you can find me, your resident story doula, at thestorydoula.co. Until next time, see you later.